Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Blackwell. I'm one of the pastors here at First SF, and I really am so grateful to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you on this Easter Sunday. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to John chapter 20. If you did not bring a Bible, don't worry, that's okay. You can use your phone or use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. It's got a table of contents, and it will help you to find John chapter 20. We say this most Sundays, but if you don't own a Bible, feel free to just take the one in the the pew in front of you. You will not be stealing on this Easter morning if you take that with you. That's our gift to you this morning. The book of John is one of four books that come at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books tell us everything that we need to know about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've never read through the Bible, if you've never read the Bible at all, I would just encourage you, the book of John is a great place for you to start in your reading. Over the last couple months here at First SF, we have been in a sermon series that we are calling The Last Night, which has been looking at these last chapters in the book of John. We call it The Last Night because these chapters cover the very last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. Now, 2,000 years ago, a lot happened on that night. Uh, Jesus Uh, You had the Last Supper, which many of you have probably seen depicted in artwork. You had Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus taught the disciples many things. He was betrayed by Judas. He was put on trial, and all of that culminated in what we talked about on Good Friday when we were talking about the fact that Jesus went to the cross. He voluntarily gave his life on the cross for our sins. That all took place on the last night. But this morning, as you can see, we are changing our focus a bit because our focus today, as you can see from the banners and these ginormous letters in front of me, is that our theme today is a new day. You see, three days after Jesus' death, the world found out in very dramatic fashion that the cross was not the end of Jesus' story. Amen? It wasn't the end. And because of Jesus' resurrection, what that means is that there is a new day available for each one of us in this room. This new day is an entirely different day than before Jesus had come back because in this moment of his resurrection, God's kingdom, in essence, broke into our world in an entirely new way. And it changed everything. It changed the lives of these disciples. It changed the lives of many throughout the ages. In this new day, joy replaces sadness. Peace replaces fear and anxiety. Forgiveness covers sin. And life reigns where once death ruled. Now, I realize this morning in our, in our world of gimmicky marketing, that all sounds too good to be true. We look at the resurrection of Jesus and we say, well, there has to be an asterisk somewhere next to it that, that this can't really be true. But I want you to consider something even this morning. In the last seven days alone, there have been two events that happened that none of us saw coming. In fact, Seven days ago, these events would have been thought unimaginable, unbelievable if you said they were going to happen. One was a great triumph. You're going to see it on the screen. As Tiger Woods came back after all his troubles, all his issues, everybody said he's done, and he won the Masters at 43 years old. It was a great triumph. The other, of course, though, was a great tragedy. As the world watched as the cathedral, cathedral at Notre Dame went up in flames. Seven days ago, you would have thought neither of these things could have happened. They, they didn't happen, and yet I don't think any of us in this room would, would contest that those events did happen. Why? Because of one thing. Lots and lots of eyewitness testimonies. 
eyewitness accounts, people that saw it. You see, there at Augusta National Golf Course, there was hundreds of people lining the 18th green as Tiger made his final putt. The streets of Paris were lined with people seeing as the cathedral went up in flames. And what did they do? They made that known to the world. They, through social media and reporting, they gave their firsthand evidence that these events happened. And all that news got to us. But do you realize this morning that that is exactly what happened with Jesus' resurrection, minus the social media piece? He didn't have that to work with at the time. What we're celebrating today is not a tall tale. In fact, even the most secular of scholars will confirm that 2,000 years ago, an entirely new movement was birthed virtually overnight because hundreds and hundreds of people were proclaiming that they had seen Jesus alive, that they had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. Eyewitness testimonies about Jesus literally turned the world upside down. And what's interesting about John chapter 20, the passage that we're looking at today, is that this is the first-hand account that we see in the Bible. We're going to see three testimonies this morning of people that saw the risen Savior. And as we see these testimonies, I want you to ask yourself, how does their testimony line up with my life? In my own testimony, does it look anything like theirs, even though we're separated by all these years? The first testimony I want us to consider today, if you look at verse 11, comes from a woman named Mary Magdalene, who was actually the very first person to see Jesus alive. Now, to be clear, Mary Magdalene is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's a different Mary. But Mary Magdalene was a woman who had been healed by Jesus early in his ministry, and ever since, she stayed closely near him. She followed him. She loved him. She obeyed him. She wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Well, in this text, we find her a couple days after his crucifixion. The New Testament tells us that while many of the disciples scattered from Jesus on the night of his betrayal, Mary was there. She was there at his trial. She saw as he was mocked and beaten and crucified. And yet here we find her in a couple days after that, in the dark hours of the early morning, standing at Jesus' tomb all alone. At this moment, she's shocked by the fact that the stone has been rolled away and she assumes the body's been stolen. How could somebody do this? How could they have taken the body of Jesus? And so with that in mind, read with me, starting in verse 11. John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now let me just stop there and say, these statements reveal the emotional turmoil of Mary Magdalene in that moment. I mean, if you can imagine, her eyes are so filled with tears, her grief is so deep, that when she sees Jesus, she doesn't even recognize him. So what does Jesus do in verse 15? Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Again, the same question. Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Well, this morning, I want you to try to put yourself in Mary Magdalene's shoes. Imagine the emotions of Mary in this moment. The man that had healed her, 
the man that had taught her, the man that had changed her life, had been crucified. Her hopes that he was the savior of the world had been dashed. Her joy had been ripped away. And now on top of all of that, she gets to the tomb and she thinks his body's been stolen. There's that popular phrase, when it rains, it pours. And I would imagine that's exactly how Mary felt in this moment. I have to believe this morning that some of you in this room feel the same way. You come into this room and you're hurting. Maybe you've had some kind of hope that you were holding on to that's been dashed. Perhaps this morning you've gone through a very grievous loss, a painful circumstance. Maybe today you're here and you feel as if your joy has been ripped away, that it's pouring and you don't know how much more you can take. I want you to listen to what Jesus does with Mary. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. See, all Jesus does is say her name. And yet in this moment when he says her name, what happens? As his voice echoes in her heart, she realizes this is my Savior. And she gets up and it says that she clings to him and that she cries out, my dear teacher. Now I envision this moment a lot like a uh, viral video that's kind of been going around the last couple weeks. I would imagine some of you have probably seen this video, but it's a a video of of a young boy, he's probably eight or nine years old, and he's thinking that part of his karate lessons are that he has to be blindfolded and fight blindfolded. Well, what he doesn't know is that his dad, who's a military figure, has been deployed for a long time, has secretly returned. And as he has this mask on, he's fighting his instructor, and the dad comes in and he takes the instructor's place, and he begins to kind of fake punch and hit with his son. He doesn't say anything until one moment, and he looks at his son, even though he's got the blindfold, and he says, Luca. He uses his name, Luca. Immediately what happens, the boy stops in his tracks. He's punching and kicking, and he just stops, and he yells out, Daddy, he rips it off, and he jumps into his father's arms. I don't know if it's because I have a son around that same age. I'm like bawling as I'm watching this viral video. (laughs) That's exactly how I picture Mary and Jesus in this moment. In one instant, Mary goes from unimaginable grief to inexpressible gladness. She goes from inconsolable sorrow to uncontainable joy. I want you to hear Mary's testimony this morning. She would say this, I was hurting, but in Jesus I found hope. I was hurting, but in Jesus I found hope. And friends, this is the point of the resurrection. Whether you realize it or not, I am fully aware that in our world and in your personal worlds, you are surrounded by sorrows and hurts and pains. Many of you have unmet desires. You have shattered dreams. You you have painful losses. Some of you come into this room today and in your family or maybe even in your own life, there's an unexpected disease, something that's rocked you to your core. All of us in this room, doesn't matter who you are, face the reality of physical death and the sadness that comes with that. But Jesus and his resurrection tells us that this is why he came. Jesus came to conquer all of that. I love D.A. Carson. He's a scholar. He says it this way, I am not suffering from anything that the resurrection cannot fix. And because of this, like Mary, in this room, we can have hope. Now, this hope begins not just for eternity. This hope begins in this life. Because here's what the resurrection tells every single one of us. It tells you, you are not alone. 
Jesus is not a God who is removed from your circumstances. He's not a God who who keeps his distance from your pain. No, just like he did with Mary, he meets us in our greatest sorrows. He meets us in our pain. And what does he do? He calls you by name. He calls you by name. The creator of the universe knows your name. He knows your circumstances. And he says, come to me. Enjoy me. Find your rest in me. This hope is in this life. But Jesus and the resurrection also ensures a hope that lasts beyond this life. Because here's the thing. No matter what we walk through in this life, both good and bad, the resurrection tells us that this life is not all there is. This life, with its greatest joys and its most devastating pains, is not all there is. Our lives are but a speck in the big picture of eternity, and the moment you die, there is much more to come. And so Easter is a great time to always ask this one question, am I prepared for that eternity? Do I have hope that exists after my death? Jesus says, for those who put their trust in me, your future is secure. Your future is with me. And that's why in Revelation 21, verse 4, it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Jesus says there's hope because in your eternity, all these sorrowful things in this life are no more. But it's more than that because in my presence, he says, there is fullness of joy at his right hand. There is pleasure forevermore. In other words, what he's saying is our greatest joys in this life are but a taste of a greater joy that we will have in the presence of Christ. This is an amazing picture. The resurrection answers that aching feeling that all of us have that there has to be more to life than what our experiences are in this world. In doing so, it gives us hope. And I realize in a, in a room this size, I, we probably have people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And you may, may say, Ryan, but aren't there many kinds of hope in this world? Many different religions that offer hope, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, agnosticism, atheism, aren't they all the same? Isn't it just subjective? Whatever your culture is, whatever your traditions are, whatever your personal preference is, well, this morning, I want you to consider something. What we're talking about, the resurrection of Jesus, is not a matter of preference at all. It's a matter of truth. This morning, either Jesus did die and rise from the dead, or Jesus died and he's still dead. It's not a question of preference. It's a question of, is this true? If you go to Muhammad's grave in Saudi Arabia, you will find his body. If you go to Joseph Smith's grave in Illinois, you will find his body. If you go to Buddha's grave in India, you will find his body. But the claim of Christianity is that when you go to Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem, there is nothing there because he is not dead. He is risen. If this is not true, the Bible itself says Christians are to be pitied among all people because they've believed a lie. They've based their lives on a lie. But if it is true, As Mary and others would say they saw the risen Savior, it has eternal ramifications because it means that Jesus alone has the answers to life. In Jesus, Mary's hurting heart found hope. I ask you this morning, do you have this living hope? Do you have a hope that exists in this life and the life to come? 
Let's move to the second eyewitness account. Read with me in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the, dis- the doors became locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. See, one of the things that I appreciate about the Bible, and the more you read the Bible, you'll get this, is that it always paints an accurate picture of humanity with all of our flaws. No, there's not one hero in the Bible other than Jesus. You can read it. A lot of times I think we put the disciples kind of on a pedestal, that they are these heroes, that they're examples, but you need to know that that's not their whole story. You find the disciples here just days after Jesus has departed, and what are they doing? They are a complete mess. The disciples are confused. They've heard the reports of Jesus being risen from the dead, but they don't believe them. They're terrified. It says that they have clustered in this room and they've locked the doors out of fear of the Jews. They know that this saint, that if they kill Jesus, they're going to come after them next. They've lost their sense of purpose. They don't know what their next steps are. They are completely lost. That is the disciples in this picture. But then Jesus shows up, and I want you to notice what he does not say. He doesn't come into that room and say, how dare you guys deny me and betray me and scatter for me when I needed you most. That's, I think if I were Jesus, that's what I would have done. How could you? You spent three years with me. What are you doing? But instead, what does he say? He says four words that I think our hearts long to hear. He looks at them and he says, peace be with you. Now, if you look at the text, he actually has to say that phrase two times, and I totally get that. If I'm sitting in a locked room and a dead person shows up smiling next to me, the last thing I'm going to have is peace in that moment, right? (laughs) Peace. But what does he do? He shows them, I'm a person. Here's my nail-scarred hands. Here's my pierced side. I'm not a ghost. And he says it again, peace be with you. That's significant. The very first thing that he wants his disciples to know is that because of his death and resurrection, he has secured their peace. Now we talked about this a little bit on Good Friday, but I want you to think about this. A lot of times when we talk about peace, we think of the absence of of hostility between nations or inner tranquility, inner peace. Jesus does bring outer peace and inner peace, but that's not the peace he's talking about here. Jesus knows that we need a more ultimate, a deeper kind of peace if we're going to have those other kinds of pieces, and that is a vertical peace, peace between us and God. You say, why is there opposition between us and God? Well, what we find in the Bible, throughout the Bible, and if you look at your own life, you realize that just like the disciples, we fail to totally obey and live for God. All of us in this room have fallen short, it says, of the glory of God. We've sinned, we've gone against Him, and that matters because He is our Creator. It's not the other way around. He designed you. He knows what's best for your life which means whether you like it or not this morning, God is the authority. He is sovereign over all things, including your life. But do we like that? No. (laughs) Starting with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, moving to each one of us, we find that we've bucked up against God's authority. We've said, God, thanks for creating me, but I can do this life on my own. I know what's best for my life, and so we've disobeyed him. We've done that through our words. We've done that through our actions. And even if you look at the the innermost depth of your heart, 
you'll see that rebellious attitude, that self-centeredness where the world revolves around me instead of it revolving around our creator. Each one of us has sinned. And the Bible says that, that the problem with that is created this chasm of opposition between us and God. There is no relationship of peace. And it doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how many times you come on Easter Sunday. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. You cannot reconcile that relationship on your own. That's the bad news of Easter. You can't fix yourself. You can't clean the sin of your life. But here's the unbelievable news of Easter. That instead of giving us the judgment that our sin against him deserved, God came in the person of Jesus and took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He took our punishment. That judgment, that separation from God, that wrath of God, it came upon him on the cross so that we don't have to endure it. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can be seen as righteous, as having a standing, right standing with God. He fixes it for us. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still going against him, what did he do? Christ died for us. That is why the crucifixion was so important. It secured our forgiveness. But what does his resurrection do? His resurrection from the dead is the confirmation that that payment for sin has been paid in full. That's why Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. The judgment has been taken for you. The resurrection tells us that because of Jesus, eternal life is possible. Spiritual life, where we walk with God, and love him, and are intimately close to him, is available through the life of Jesus. You see, this peace with Jesus is so much more than the absence of conflict. When we become a Christian, when we give our lives to Jesus, we become family. God is our Father. That's why in this passage, it's the first time that Jesus calls the disciples, my brothers. There's this personal relationship that is offered because of the resurrection of Jesus. As you read through the rest of the New Testament, what you find is that this peace changed the disciples forever. It's an amazing picture. Really, it's one of the the greatest confirmations that, that he really was alive. Because there's nothing else that can account for the change that happens in the life of the disciples. One moment, they are paralyzed by fear, in a locked room with a locked door, huddled with themselves. And the very next, what are they doing? They're out in the world proclaiming Jesus is alive. And forgiveness and life is available through him. There's a radical change. When they were beaten in prison, they kept speaking. When some of them were were given death threats, they kept speaking. When some of them were killed through stoning or through, through being burned alive, the others kept speaking. Why? They could not hold that peace to themselves. They had to let the world know that peace and life are available in Jesus. If I could summarize the disciples' testimony, it is this. I was lost. I was afraid. I didn't know what my purpose was. But in Jesus, I found peace. I wonder this morning, in the same way that I asked, do you have a living hope this morning? Do you have peace? Do you have peace with God? Do you, has He satisfied the, the longings of your, of your heart? Uh, My fear is that many of us in this life, we are looking for peace and security and all sorts of other things other than Jesus. We're looking to it through 
uh, for, through success or through work. I, I recently watched a movie called Free Solo. How many of you have seen the movie Free Solo? It's a documentary. Some of you in the room. It's a very interesting and also a scary movie because it follows the life of a, of a climber named Alex Honnold and his singular pursuit to become the very first person to climb the face of El Capitan without ropes. It's crazy. If you watch this video, it's terrifying. You'll see a picture of him actually doing this feat. But as you watch the movie, it's very interesting because it follows all of his training. And his entire life, he says, he doesn't have time for relationships or anything else. His entire life is bent on climbing El Cap without ropes. But there's a moment at the end when he finally gets to the top. And he has joy, and he's, he's so thankful, and he's excited, and there's this temporary satisfaction. But at the very end of the movie, he's left with the same question I think that all of us get to in life. And that question is this. He's asking, what's next? It doesn't matter that he did what he thought would bring him satisfaction. It did not bring the ultimate fulfillment that he so longed for. Friends, I am afraid that there are countless people in this room and all over our city every day climbing the walls of relationships that will never truly satisfy them. Climbing the walls of success and the accumulation of wealth. Climbing the walls of influence. Climbing the walls of power. Climbing the, 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 the walls of, 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 of popularity and of Insta, Instagram worthiness and, and all these other things. Climbing, thinking, if I can just get to the top of this cliff, I will be satisfied. I will have peace. The resurrection is here to help you realize before you burn out on that quest, only in a risen Jesus can you find the peace that your anxious and longing heart longs for. Only in Jesus. The last testimony we see comes from Thomas, the one disciple who missed out on seeing Jesus earlier. We aren't sure why Thomas wasn't in the room earlier with the other disciples. Maybe he was out getting Starbucks for the group while they were all in there. We don't know. But here's what happens in verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now Thomas kind of gets a bad rap, but I am so grateful that God put a person like Thomas in the story. Who among us has not had doubts? None of us want to build our lives on a lie. And that's Thomas in this text. But here's what it says in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know about you, but this passage is incredibly encouraging to me. I think sometimes we think that because of our doubts, Jesus is just going to zap us, that he's angry with us. But, but he, Jesus does not come to Thomas and say, Hey, stop doubting, you dummy. Don't do that anymore. Instead, what does Jesus do? He comes to Thomas and he shows Thomas the extent of his love for him. He says, Thomas, you want to know how much I love you? Look at my nail-scarred hands. 
Look at my side. You see, this morning, even, I think, if all of you in this room had all the physical evidence of the resurrection that you needed, if the risen Jesus was in this room, I would have afraid some of us would still reject him because our, our problem at the end of the day is not an evidence problem. There's tons of evidence of the resurrection. Our, evidence is a, our problem is a heart problem. We, we don't trust that God is actually out for our good. We don't trust that Jesus giving him our lives will actually lead to joy and peace. We think we can find those things on our own. But Jesus comes to Thomas and he comes to each one of you. And he says, if you are having a hard time trusting my love for you, that if you're having a hard time trusting that I am for you, I'm not against you, look at my nail-scarred hands. Look at my pierced side. There is nothing that shouts the love of Jesus for you more than his death and resurrection. Jesus loves you. And he this morning is calling you by name. He says, I don't love you because of who you are. I don't love you because you've earned something from me, because you've been a really good person. I love you because I created you to have a relationship with me. John goes on at the end of the chapter to say these words, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not but written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, the reason I'm giving you these testimonies, all of you in this room, the reason I'm giving these is so that you will believe and have life in his name. Talking about Jesus. That word believe is, is emphasized. It's seen three times in these last verses. Which means this morning there's a question for all of us to ask. You see, this word believe is what separates Christianity from every other religion. God doesn't look at us and he doesn't say, hey, if you just check off all these boxes... You just do all these good things. Then you can have a relationship with me. No, he says, do you believe? There's a question that each one of you must ask. Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is resurrected from the dead? Do I believe that in Jesus there is life? And before you answer yes, let me say this. It's important you understand what this word believe is talking about. Jesus isn't just saying that you need to believe in facts about Jesus. Because here's the thing, the Bible shows us over and over again that there are many people who would even say, yes, Ryan, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that are not saved from their sins, that don't have a relationship with him. How do you know that? Well, the Bible says even the demons believe, and yet I think we'd all agree, they're not saved. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus himself, in his most famous sermon, talking about the day that we will all come face to face with God, says these words. I want you to hear this, and we're closing on this. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? In other words, there's many people that will stand before the risen Jesus after they die. And he, we will look at it and they will say, didn't we go to church? Didn't we attend every Easter service? Or didn't we, didn't we give to people and super generous? Didn't we go after social justice? Didn't we do all of these things? He says, and I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let me just be very real with you this morning in closing. That verse grips my heart every time because here's what it tells me. It tells me as your pastor that there are many people. Jesus uses that word, many people, who are sitting in this building every Sunday 
even Easter Sunday, who will be shocked when they stand before the risen Jesus and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me forever. That verse terrifies me. There's nothing I want more for than for all of you in this room, when you stand before Jesus, for him to say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Faith is not having psychological certainty. It is coming to Jesus and responding to Jesus in the same way that Thomas does. Believing in Jesus is not just believing in facts about it. It is coming and saying as Thomas does, my Lord, my God, Jesus, I need you. I can't save myself. You are my Lord and my God. I no longer want to rule my life. You become the ruler of my life. Jesus, I give you my life. This is what true faith is. It's exactly what Thomas did, and because of that, here's Thomas's testimony. I was doubting, but in Jesus I found life. Friends, there is my greatest prayer for you on this Easter Sunday is that like Mary, like the disciples, like Thomas, you would believe in Jesus Christ. Not that you would believe simply that he was risen from the dead or that he's a great teacher or any of those things, but that instead you would turn from your opposition to him and that you'd run to him and trust in him and that you'd give him all of your life. That you would respond as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. John says when you do that, by believing, you have life in his name. This morning, life is available to you. Ravi Zacharias once said this, Jesus did not come to make good people or bad people good i think that's what a lot of us think he says jesus came to make dead people alive and friend that can be true of you he can take you from a place of spiritual death where you're in opposition toward god to a place of family being a child of god jesus alone can forgive your sins and free your guilt jesus alone can satisfy your hearts he alone can give you spiritual life today how will you respond to this jesus the testimonies, once again, Mary, I was hurting, but in Jesus I found hope. The disciples, I was lost, but in Jesus I found peace. Thomas, I was doubting, but in Jesus I found life. Friend, today I want you to consider this question. What will your testimony be?